0: Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 212. This week, we talk with Adam Barr about lessons he has learned throughout his career. Microsoft says stop using Internet Explorer. And run Windows 95 in an Electron app for reasons.
1: Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at Raygun.com.
0: This week, we have Adam Barr. He worked at Microsoft for over 23 years, and now he's the author of The Problem with Software, Why Smart Engineers Write Bad Code. How's it going, Adam? It's going great. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Carl, what do we have for the comment
1: of the week? So I actually pulled two different comments. Uh, Last week, we had uh, Joe Zach. uh, on to talk about the jam stack. Yep. And, uh, he was promoting that kind of everywhere. So, uh, the first one is pulled from an unusual place, LinkedIn comment. Uh, it's from, uh, Michael Zuhl. He said, uh, Jason and Carl are great guys on top of having a great show. So thank you very much, mm-hmm. uh, for that comment. And the other one was from Twitter responding to Joe's announcement that he was on the podcast. He said, uh, the Infra Dev said, awesome. Congrats. I love their theme tune so much. Oh, and the show, of course, I look forward <laughs> to listening to this one. And I, I think that one's a little bit timely because, uh, you know, one thing that, uh, uh, Jason and I do is we talk about our podcast a lot and what we want to do with it. And recently, uh, Jason was like, Hey, I want to really shorten up the intro. And, uh, I'm like, well, send me what you're thinking. And is like cutting half the theme song out. So, and I said, uh, no, I like that. So let's keep it. And apparently, here's a little bit of data backing me up that at least somebody else likes the tune. <laughs> yep. So, so we are data driven. So, if you have any comments for us, no matter if they're about the content, um, you know the the structure of how we have it, or even a, a theme tune or graphics, uh, reach out to us. You can get a hold of us at feedback at msdevshow.com and you can comment on our f- website or on Twitter. And we really like those five star iTunes reviews.
0: Very good. Let's get into the news. Microsoft Security Chief. IE is not a browser. Wait, what? It's not a browser. So stop using it as your default.
1: Yes, it's now a security vulnerability. Actually, I think what it was, uh, I'd have to find it in the site. It's just like slipping my head, but it's, uh, it's a legacy shim, essentially. So if you absolutely need it, use it for those websites that haven't been tuned, that you know you haven't paid that technical debt down on. But for day-to-day browsing of the web, do not use Internet Explorer.
2: Yeah, I think Microsoft is here admitting that in the past they made some decisions that were probably reasonable at the time to, uh, for compatibility over uh, full standard support. And now they're essentially saying, well we'll keep IE around for that old standards mode, but really it's not by default going to uh, be the full browser you want, which is, I guess in a way, uh, nice of Microsoft to, to fess up to that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just not getting the same attention, right? I mean, it's not, it's, it's just not, getting the same you know security attention that that uh, more modern browser gets so i just use it use it sparingly as needed basically um yeah I, I
2: think they re- they're really sort of saying that the standards are not what you'd expect we we we, yeah. we made some intentional choices doesn't sound like so much known security exploits just it intentionally behaves in a certain way which is probably not what you'll expect with if you write uh, have a modern website mm-hmm. uh, that expects certain standards from your browser by default
0: yeah so i i did have um i had a neighbor um she texted me and i thought this was kind of interesting because she said that her her father had heard that um that we were killing edge uh, and to stop using the edge browser and she's like you know what is what is the story there and basically they were getting it confused with this story around swapping out the back end um, rendering engine to use chromium uh, versus the 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 engine that, that basically Microsoft had written uh, which I think was chakra um, or is that the JavaScript I can never remember uh, or edge HTML right Carl that was the the rendering engine yep. so yep. um <laughs> I just thought it was kind of interesting that you know like a normal like non-technical person they you know how how they how this the story sort of gets uh, flipped around and then it it hurts you know something like edge but I said no 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 keep keep using edge. It's a great browser and it's you're really not going to notice a difference other than maybe some sites that, that you know were really um, optimized for Chrome specifically will, will work better in there. But for the most part, I don't think you'd notice a difference and just keep using Edge if you're using it.
2: I'm sure the language in this blog post that Chris Jackson wrote was gone over again and again to figure out <laughs> how exactly it could be messaged without confusing people, but with the realization that... Inevitably, you would confuse people and, and oh some, yeah, yeah, some very simplified message would leak out, which was stop using the internet or something.
0: Exactly, exactly. It's crazy how these stories are, are misinterpreted. But, I mean, it is kind of weird that there are two browsers. Um, I mean, it makes sense for us technical people, but I, it is confusing, I think, for everybody else. Should we move on, Carl? Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Roadmap to becoming a web developer in 2019.
1: Yeah. So this is a, a GitHub repo that kind of shows, uh, what, what somebody's recommended path is, uh, for people who want to learn web development, uh, with, with the current state of technologies. And they, they have it broken up into three images, front end, back end, and DevOps. And. You know, I can say if I was looking at this, uh, when I was choosing a major in college, I might not become a developer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is because insane. Yeah. This is kind of, this is kind of scary. The, you know, the state of modern web development. Uh, you know, luckily in schools, they kind of like, this is HTML. And this is CSS, and we're not even going to get into JavaScript for a while, mm-hmm. um, to not even scare you. But with you know the state of package managers and preprocessors and postprocessors and and frameworks and uh, all of that stuff, you know, and, and just the sheer options you have with many of them, uh, you know, it's it's kind of scary the choices that we do have as developers nowadays
0: yeah i think this is more i mean i think this is almost more i like i think this is great i think he i did he did some great work here i like that he put this together but i think that the um this would be almost is is better for somebody who's sort of past that beginner stage where it's like hey what what what's you know what does this whole world look like you know if i'm if i'm in the devops world or I'm in the back end world or front end world like what What do I need to sort of have a well-rounded understanding of everything that's available and that I should be, you know, at least have a, a 200 level understanding of. So I think it's, I think it's better from that perspective. Like you said, I think if you come in knowing nothing, you're like, Hey, I think computers are cool. I want to learn how to write software. You know, like if I gave this to like one of my kids, I'm like, here you go. This is what it is. I think, I do think I would scare them away from it. Um, but I would say even if you are a beginner though, like just it may look intimidating, but just kind of read through it and, and then just jump into a project. Like I always think that that's the the best way to get started and and learn the things that you need to know, and then take a look at this and figure out the other pieces that you might be interested in learning.
1: And, and I think the key there is uh well-rounding, you know, this is definitely kind of shows the landscape of what's available. Uh, but if you kind of look at how things are organized too, I mean, there's a lot of different boxes, uh, that have lines through them and then like more dotted lines away. If you just kind of concentrate on the center solid line that kind of connects the main ones, that's actually, you know, it, if you, it, it gives you enough of a guidance on like the things you need to be aware of without kind of hitting, you know, overwhelming you with all your options. It's once you kind of like spread off into those dotted lines, like that's really saying, Hey, here's all the options within this class of technologies.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. I think if you look at on the sides too, you're starting to get into specific technologies, which may well be replaced with something newer in a year or two. So you don't necessarily need to learn all of those Right now, if you're a student, because you might wind up not using them.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, The next one here is really wacky. Run Windows 95 as an app. um, And yes, it even runs Doom. What the heck is going on here, Carl? Because I know, I think we had where you could run Windows 95 in a browser a while back, right?
1: Yeah. So the crazy thing about this is not just that Windows 95 is an application that you can run, but it runs on Windows, Mac, or Linux, as well. (laughs) And as part of that, it kind of, it kind of runs in a virtual disc environment where you have an additional like 500 megs of free space, which remember windows 95 days, that's like enormous, um, where you can do all sorts of stuff. And it even has like programs and games pre-installed. So you can even like check out doom. Uh, I'm looking at a screenshot there and I say, see an AOL and internet free trial. Um, but this is using an existing emulator written in JavaScript. So that's how it can kind of run everywhere. And it's uh, running in a single window Chromium web browser. So you know, bring <laughs> it back I, to what can yeah. Chromium power. I know. I, I just, I, I can't wrap my head around
0: how many layers there are <laughs> in this thing because in it's it's an Electron app running on Chromium. So it's running like the Chrome it's, it's running JavaScript and then it's running the Chrome engine on top of whatever you're on, it's just so confusing, and I don't understand. Is this like an emulator? I don't. I don't get how.
1: Yes. So it's running an emulator, and that emulator is okay. written in JavaScript.
0: <laughs> a JavaScript emulator running an Electron app. Okay. Well, at least the performance is better than running it in a browser. <laughs> it's re- weird running an operating system in a browser. Um, yeah, this is pretty wild, and I love this too because you know stuff that I forgot. Like it says. Uh recommends that you switch to a resolution of 640 by 480 at 256 colors before starting DOS games. Uh just like the good old days. <laughs> like I totally forgot about that. But, you know, like preparing to like launch a game and getting it in the right state. Pretty wild. Uh okay. US iPhone users spent on average $79 on apps last year, up 36% from 2017.
1: So I, I think there's two key takeaways here. Um, uh, the first one is I think this is the first year where the uh, iPhone has had subscription based applications. Mm-hmm. So that's where there's can be a recurring charge. And I think that's most of this jump is, is from that. Um, so, you know, if you're an app developer looking to, you know, monetize, it looks like subscription based ways are, are definitely a, a way that people are actually spending money on applications. Uh, the other one is, uh, I I almost have to curious about going back through my own personal app history of what I've paid for and what I haven't uh because I think it's amazing that uh in, and granted these are US numbers that uh the average person is spending $80 a year. So obviously there's many people not spending anything and many people spending way more than 80 but that seems to be a, a pretty, you know, decent number. Yeah,
0: my my spending at least doubled in 2018. And part of it was the subscription-based services, which I sort of love and hate. I love them for certain types of applications. Um, I did pay for a couple months. There was a a travel app uh, that let me, it was whenever we were crossing the country in our RV, what it let us do is you could put in your, where you were starting and ending. And it was like, it was almost like a temporal based thing because it would tell you the weather along the way at the time that you were going to be there which was incredibly smart. And then it also would tell you things like changes in elevation. Um, it's a weird app to have a subscription around. I assume it was because of the backend services, but I did end up subscribing to that. And then I forgot about it for a couple of months. So I ended up paying for that, which was frustrating. Um, and then I am paying for uh, Duolingo, which I think is like 10 bucks a month. Um, so I'm spending, you know, that's 120 bucks a year. And then one of my sons, uh, he's obsessed with uh, the weather and he is paying inside of Carrot Weather for like one of the premium options in there because he loves all the different charts and the radar and all that kind of stuff. Um he get he likes getting all of that additional data. So I think that, that is uh that is a big thing. Plus, I, I think that at least me personally, I've kind of gotten over this um, you know, hey, this app can provide like tremendous value to me and it's a dollar ninety nine. Um, you know, there's, there's always, it's this funny phenomenon, you know, you're, when you're buying a house, it's just like, oh, well we only had to, you know, we only had to spend 10,000 more than what we expected. And then dollar 99 app, no way. Um, $50 meal. Um, okay. That sounds great. Like, you know, the, the, perspective that we put on these apps just doesn't make any sense whatsoever even as developers it doesn't make any sense so i've, I've sort of tried to force myself like if i if i know that apple provide a lot of value and it's a buck 99 like just just buy it and just help support that uh that community so i definitely have spent a lot more uh okay should we move on let's yeah. talk about the problem with software um so which is a book (laughs) so adam what is uh what is this book about and like what what prompted you to write this so this book is
2: about really the history of of software engineering over the last 50 years which is approximately when the term software engineering started Mm -hmm. being used and the problem is the gap between academia and industry which also started about 50 years ago there was a conference in 1968 where academics and industry people got together started talking about software engineering and agreed, yes, we should make this a real engineering discipline. Uh, Let's have another conference the next year. So they had a conference the next year and they got into a big argument over whether the academics were just off in a cloud or no, the industry people just wanted to shove software out the door. And that's essentially persisted since then. And what people learn in school, which is very focused on algorithms and very small pieces of software, is not what's needed in industry, which is a lot of big software written by multiple teams that have to be supported for years and years. The original authors are not working on it anymore. It's sold to customers who run their business on it, et cetera, et cetera. And and that gap has persisted. And really, software engineering is not a true engineering discipline, the way you think of something like civil engineering or mechanical engineering.
1: So, I mean... Just breaking that down apart, you know, you said that there are there there are or at least were some people who thought that software engineering could be an engineering um, uh, based field. What you know, compared to what most people experience in their day to day jobs, what would that look like? Well, you would have
2: much more experimental research to back up almost anything uh, that you do, rather than essentially relying on your intuition and what worked well last time. So one example is language choice, what language to use for what application. A lot of people will just use whatever they used last time. So they they discover Perl. They think Perl is really nice for small pieces of software because you save some typing and, and Perl is nice for some small pieces of software. And then they go write a large piece of software in Perl and uh, maybe realize it's not such a great idea or maybe they don't because they haven't. there's, there's no thinking behind this from academia saying, okay, this this kind of language is good for this kind of problem, this kind of language is good for that kind of problem. A lot of the the modern techniques that are offered as solutions to the ills of software engineering, so Agile or test-driven development, now you got DevOps, a lot of people talk about functional programming. Again, there's nobody saying, well, okay, Agile is good, Scrum is good in these cases, but it's not good in those cases. This is where you want to do test-driven development. This is where a functional language can help. Uh, this is the size of team where DevOps is useful. This is the size of team where DevOps is not useful. Everything's just presented as, wow, this is the greatest thing. Everyone should jump on this. And they all do have, they all do have some, some source environment where they were discovered to be useful. So th- these are not, it's not uh, people selling snake oil, but they're, they're overhyped uh, because, well, I mean, that's what sells books and, and uh, gets conference signups. So people naturally will uh, keep pushing something beyond where it's, where it's actually useful.
0: Yeah, it's such a good a, a good observation. So, you know, you mentioned that you were at Microsoft for 23 years. So what what types of lessons that you learned while you were working there?
2: Well what I learned, especially when I was there, I'd been there a little while. I I, I was a pro, somebody who taught myself to program in high school, like a lot of Microsoft people of my era. And I graduated from college in nineteen eighty-eight. I came to Microsoft in early nineteen ninety and really thought, wow, I know how to program. I'm I'm awesome. And what I learned really I happened to start working on large projects. The one I worked on almost from the start was the first version of Windows NT uh, under Dave Cutler. And he had a lot of experience working on large software and he appreciated the value of doing engineering in a in a structured, formal, slower way, uh, slower being good in this case, uh, taking your time to do it right. And so I really learned after a little bit of time that I didn't know everything about writing software and there was a lot of benefits and things like code reviews and doing design documents and and discussing your work with other people and making sure you had a a good plan to test it all this stuff that when you're writing a college assignment with a couple other people that's going to disappear at the end of the semester you don't think about because they're they're not really relevant there but for something like windows nt which is the core of it is still being used 30 years later uh somewhat amazingly so it's it's good that uh there was a little more formal engineering applied to that.
0: Yeah. That's a, that's such a contrast to, you know, the, the today, like, you know, Facebook is always, you know, move fast and break things. And, and I've heard a lot about the, the culture over there and it's really like, Oh, Hey, uh, you're brand new, like write some code and we'll put that into production. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. totally opposite of what you're talking about. Yeah. Although to be fair, I mean,
2: companies like Facebook and Amazon that have a, a quick, a, a, a model of, of, get things out there quickly. Also have very aggressive and and, uh, and uh, well-designed systems for detecting errors and rolling things back quickly. Yeah. And, and they have such scale. I heard that Amazon can detect any issue in their code just by looking in, in, in their main uh, e-commerce website, just by noticing some ridiculously small drop. Like if they get a 5% drop in sales uh, at a certain time period based on what they expect from mm-hmm. historical data, they know something is wrong with the site. And they can roll it back automatically. They don't even have to have somebody call in and tell them something's broken. They just know. The Same thing with Facebook. They know exactly how much people are going to be using it and clicking on this at any time. And if they sense a drop, they're like, "Well, something's broken." Yeah. Let's roll it back. So, so they can get away with that partly because of their size and the infrastructure they have uh, to support quick rollouts and, and and quick rollbacks.
0: Yeah, and then what about the stakes? Right, like you you mentioned, you know, work uh, that was that was taken like on the NT core. I mean, obviously, like that's even running a lot of the AWS stuff that we're talking about, because they're running Windows Server in some cases, which is still using that exact same code that was used back then. So and 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 if if Facebook if Facebook messes something up, you know, maybe somebody's like, Oh, where did my photo go? You know, so you know the stakes are probably just different, right?
2: Yeah, it could be. I, I think that uh Facebook cares a lot. I I think Facebook probably over Plays this oh move fast and break things mm-hmm. attitude because it maybe makes them seem a little edgy compared to small startups. But I was in Barbados last month and i was at the airport self check-in machine and it rebooted and started doing a pixie boot that little network boot yep. where it and I actually worked on on the next bit of code the the loader that uh, was going to be downloaded and, and then launch NT because I worked on remote boot in the late nineties. And I thought, huh, that, that's probably going to be my code running there <laughs> in, about, in about five seconds. I I hope it still works. So, yeah, when you're working on low-level stuff, there is the this issue. Of, if, if NT can't boot, I mean, somebody's just uh, – or Windows, I guess it's called now. No more NT. Um, <laughs> but it's the same code yeah. under there. If, if it can't boot, um, somebody's just dead in the water. Their computer mm-hmm. doesn't work. And Maybe, yeah, with a big website. Some machine at Facebook's data center is down. You refresh your browser. You probably get another machine. Maybe get another data center. It'll probably resolve itself.
1: So, <clears throat> looking at like the software industry, kind of like from the point that you mentioned that it kind of diverged from some of the classical interests to today, there's been just a ton of money in the industry as a whole. Has the fi- financial incentives around software kind of changed and scoped how we develop? Well, I think Microsoft. <clears throat> Microsoft, excuse me used to get criticized for shipping software with
2: with bugs in it There was some famous thing that Windows two thousand or something had sixty three thousand bugs which just meant sixty three thousand open issues in the bug database mm-hmm. which doesn't necessarily mean sixty three thousand bugs uh, far from it uh, and even then you have to make a choice you you could you could continue to try to fix bugs but you have to do you have to make some trade off of saying well yes, but people want to use this software and how important are these bugs and, and so and it it makes you sound a little bit evil, but uh, especially with the techniques you had, techniques we were using, it was just very hard to fix all the bugs and especially to fix all the bugs without introducing some number of new bugs that you then have to chase down. Well, well because we didn't have good unit testing and, and touching the code was always going to be risky and, and you didn't even know what environment Windows would run in because it ran everywhere. So... Uh, I think the decisions made were, were generally good. But it's true, there's, there's always this business decision made about when you ship. But by getting, going to better engineering practices, I think you could ship with the same quality in less time or ship with better quality in the same time. There's a lot of, of waste in software engineering because people don't quite know what they're doing the way you'd expect from people who call themselves engineers.
1: Raygun provides full-stack error, crash, and performance monitoring for tech teams. Whether you're a software engineer looking to diagnose and resolve issues with greater speed and accuracy, or you're just concerned you're losing customers to poor quality online experiences, Raygun can provide you with the answers. Get full-stack error and performance monitoring in one place. The next time you're struggling to replicate errors and performance issues in your codebase, think Raygun. Head over to Raygun.com. Get up and running within minutes dramatically improve the online experience of your users. You know, so I, one thing that I wanted to bring up that I wanted to get your take
0: on was, and I thought about it again, whenever we were talking about like, um, you know, some of these web apps, whenever you play a game and, and something goes wrong, the game generally doesn't crash. Like, you know, my son sits there and he'll play Xbox or we'll play Nintendo or whatever game system it is games uh, other than a rare exception, never crash. They always work. Um, sometimes they glitch. In fact, there's some hilarious uh, videos online of games glitching in really crazy ways, but there's something about, there's something about how games are written that they just, the code just continues on. I don't know if it's like visual basic where you do like on error resume next, but um, in, in business apps, it's like anything that goes wrong. Let's say it's a a null reference exception. Anytime anything goes wrong, it's just like, oh, you know, an error has occurred, like want, want, <laughs> we, 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 give up. And, um, it seems like some of the bit larger, like modern websites like Facebook do, um, they do act a little bit more like that. Or uh, Netflix is actually a really good example of this too. Cause I know like they do a lot of chaos engineering. Um, I've seen, and we've talked to uh, Charles Torrey about this, where you open up the, the Netflix app on a device and, um, and the, the order, of the sections has changed because those are different API calls and sometimes they'll fail and then sometimes they'll pop in afterward. Like it's sort of self healing. Um, But like, is there, is there something that we can learn from that? Like should, should all apps be self healing? Should they just give up and say like a unknown known error has occurred? Like how do, is there, is there a lesson that we can sort of cross apply to those different types of software?
2: Yes. I think that, that that they're making a choice. So, so the games I, suspect that some of it's probably just recovering quickly and and catching that top level exception and doing something intelligent with it instead of letting it bubble out the top of the application i think games tend to be more an engine and data so you can get the engine working pretty solidly where at least it can recover again yeah. if, if the data is weird or something strange happens it can sort of uh I don't know. Heal itself sounds a little too science fictiony, but it can it can handle that issue, and also just people understand that for a gaming audience, uh, it's sort of interesting. But somebody having their game crash just before they save might stress them out a lot more than having their Excel spreadsheet crash just before they save it. So, so the mm-hmm. I don't know about that. Saying, well, <laughs> I don't know. I, I hear my kids yelling a lot louder about the game issue than the than the the word processor issue, but. And yeah, I think that it, it, you can you can engineer stuff uh, to behave a certain way in the face of errors. I think a lot of business applications, especially a lot of websites, maybe that aren't really critical, there's just not the economic imperative to say, wow, we have to recover from this. And, and also maybe the, 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 the coding techniques used aren't as mature and robust as what people use for games, because games really are a, a big deal now. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly when I was a kid and I played old junky video games, they did crash, but they were also a bit more of a niche yeah. industry back then. So, um, yeah, I think you, you you can you can do this. You can make things more uh, resistant. I think the modern style of architecture, which is probably more what Netflix is doing of having each your component being a container separated by API calls, is a more reliable design. One piece of your code crashes. You can have the rest of it react to that. It doesn't just crash everything. You're not all running in one process that just dies on a null pointer exception. So splitting up your design like that it, it is more reliable and, and lets you get closer to the idea of something that's twice as strong, Some an engineering concept that is mostly missing from software. I can make something twice as reliable, twice as strong, uh, twice as resistant to uh, certain kinds of problems. Uh, so I think, again, Netflix, companies like Netflix, Facebook, even Microsoft, those are big companies that, over the years, have actually learned something about engineering where you really see more problems I think is in smaller companies putting up some websites it's used in in some industry and it's ten people working on it and they might not have the engineering rigor that you might hope they had because they haven't had this experience of working on a large piece of software
1: mm-hmm. so what are the things that we as individual developers can do to kind of help uh, kind of change the state of you know, what we're doing day to day and what we're doing, you know, corporately.
2: Well, one thing I'd say, and I, I in the book, I, I talk through some history of what Fred Brooks, who was an, uh, an uh, author who wrote about software engineering back in the 70s and 80s, uh, he talked about no silver bullet. He has a famous essay called no, no Silver Bullet that there's no magic cure for the problems of software engineering. And I think a lot of things, as I talked about earlier, agile, test-driven development, even object-oriented programming, they're offered up as silver bullets. This one thing will cure all the problems of software engineering if you just do this thing. And uh, one thing I'd encourage people to do is to be a little more uh, suspicious, more informed consumers of of these silver bullets. If someone comes to town saying DevOps will cure everything or Kanban will cure everything, just be a little more uh, uh I don't know what the word is you know like I said suspicious or a more informed consumer of that just to say okay well maybe it worked for you in your situation but maybe I'm in a different situation there's probably something I can learn from this but I don't have to completely shift over to to doing that when I worked in office one of the projects I worked on in office was the whole group was trying to ship every month office used to ship every two years and now it ships every month and. Initially, people said, well, Agile talks about shipping every month. Scrum talks about shipping every month. Maybe you should do Scrum and had some Scrum people come in and realize that in a company or group with thousands of engineers, Scrum really doesn't help you ship every month. It, it, It doesn't apply to a team that size. And Really, what you needed was a whole lot of processes and tools and changing the way things are done and rings of validation and actually slowing down development a bit so you could be more careful with what went out and that's how office got to to shipping every month. Uh and it wasn't the, the the current trendy thing in the industry, it was actually just a lot of hard work and 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 doing all this engineering stuff. Uh so just keep that in mind uh when you're evaluating uh somebody saying, here's the answer to your problems.
0: Mhm. Yeah, there was a there was a comment that I was going to Oh, I was going so the uh, the shipping the office shipping every month. Um it really is like it, it really is a monumental achievement. It it really impresses me. I actually use the the web-based version of um of Outlook. I don't and I use the desktop versions of the other applications. And what what really amazes me is even with the desktop applications is that it, I'll see a bug or I'll see something that I think is should be improved. And, uh, you know, I'll use the little smiley face. I'll do a little sad face and and I'll put my message in there and it just blows my mind. Like I have on multiple occasions, they've said, oh yeah, that's a great idea or we'll fix that. And then a month later, (laughs) all of a sudden it's there. And, uh, and that is really impressive. The fact that they've gotten that pipeline from like idea or, or bug report, to actually getting that shipped into into production, and like you said, I mean, there's got to be a lot of gates and and process in between there. But man, the end the end result is pretty impressive, I have to say.
2: Yeah, there was this this word that this phrase that was used I2D, which is idea to deployment. Essentially, how fast can you get from an idea, which is for example somebody clicking on the the frowny face in office and, and sending feedback to actually deploying it. So it's actually shipping out. And, and the goal is to shrink this from, well, it used to be multiple years down to uh, a month or two uh, office. Still the, the, the code is, is done from a developer perspective. There's still one more month of baking it in and testing it internally, but, but essentially something get out can get out there within, within two months, which is, which is really an amazing, as you said, it's an amazing accomplishment mm-hmm. given where office was, uh, uh, five years ago, or whatever it was. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, it, it's it's uh, it's very impressive, and 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 I think hopefully, maybe you appreciate. Hopefully, people appreciate there there was a lot of work done. It wasn't just
1: well, hey, let's just ship every, month, every <laughs> Yeah, <two years>. like, <laughs> what an idea! Great, great idea.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, I, I kind of wanted to go back to some of your thoughts on education because you kind of started uh, talking about how you. How we're educated kind of differs on how uh, we actually perform um, the tasks out in the real world. But in the last couple of years, there's been uh, advents of like developer boot camps. Uh, Pluralsight and Udemy offers online training and a self-paced course. There's a lot more options for people to kind of self-train. Do those things kind of help overcome some of that uh, missing – uh, training that uh, traditional colleges and universities aren't providing us? Or are they just adding more uh, noise and kind of confusing uh, the signal of what we should be learning about?
2: Well, they help with some of the things. So one one problem with academia is that they really don't focus very much on, on current tools, uh, which I understand, of course, because the current tools may change. Uh, in a year, but just the, the generally this is how web development is done this is this is uh what modern software developers do so a uh, a boot camp is actually nice because it will be focused on at least one one tech stack and you'll get in depth experience there and also it's it's done almost entirely in front of a computer with somebody there to help you whereas almost all of my education in school was done in a classroom, and then we'd go to the lab and try to figure it out ourselves so there's much more of a self-taught aspect to what I did uh, versus a boot camp where you do something you can ask the instructor whether you're in the lab or later and, and get sort of this this real feedback on a on a real problem you still boot camp still puts you in a small environment with just a few other people working on something short term uh, the the language choice is probably chosen for you uh, things like that there's probably not as much guidance on things like API design as I'd like to see it's still get it working, uh, essentially. So, so bootcamp has some benefits, but, uh, but still the it's, it's not, it's not that they have this engineering rigor that they're teaching, which is, which is missing from academia. It's still, uh, in, in the same general, uh, general, uh, way that, that academia.
1: So, you know, one of the thoughts that I've had, you know, that might be a a crossbreed between the two is I, even when I was going through school, I was wondering, why don't we kind of teach this kind of how electricians and plumbers are done with like a journeyman thing where you're actually, uh, you know, you have, you're following somebody who's employed, a who's a master in their trade. You're following them along. You're getting, you know, the, the theory, the knowledge, but you're also getting the day to day. This is how it works. These are the best practices and you're working on long-term projects. You know, to me, that seems like it, you know, it's kind of hitting the best of both worlds, kind of talking to some of the points that you're saying that we're missing. Um, but you know, it's one of those, you know, you know, concepts that I don't see anybody offering an educational choice like that. No, you don't see it much. Obviously you have internships
2: and co-ops, but as somebody who, who managed interns at Microsoft, an internship is really an extended 12 week job interview. That's the main goal. You do want to give the person a good experience, and, and, and interns have done important work. As uh, The the solitaire game in Windows was written by an intern, uh, probably the most famous code uh, in the history of the world. So interns do do real work, but it's, it's really mostly about giving them a nice constrained problem, and you, you sort of intentionally shield an intern from working on a huge piece of code because they can't learn it in 12 weeks and and, and having to work with a bunch of different people and do something really complicated because... Again, they, they don't have the time to really uh, get into it. So, so internships don't really give the, the engineering approach you. One thing I wish schools would do is just work more with open source because that's really what you mostly do as a programmer. You're not working on some small project from nothing. You're working on making small modifications to a very large existing code base. And now we have large existing code bases out there. All this these big open source projects. So. I think it would be great if school said, "Okay, we're going to have a class which is Linux kernel modification, or or making changes <laughs> to Apache, or 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 any any of yeah, these there's large lots of big
0: projects, projects where
2: you you jump in, you have to learn something, and you could carve off a little piece of it, and the instructor would learn about it, and be able to give advice, and then people would have to make various small changes, and uh, but they'd see other people's code and they'd they'd understand, oh wow." When you work in a large code base and of course you'd be working with all the worldwide collaborators on this open source project essentially oh people have different styles and different approaches and we should agree on some standards and 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 now i see that when i make a small change here i have have to worry about it possibly breaking something over there so you start to appreciate the value of unit tests and uh you want to do code reviews because you're checking in something public so you want to have people review it to make sure you're following the coding standards and so on. So I think there's a lot of opportunity now to get that experience. You don't even have to physically be following an actual program around in the real world. You can just be following the code of an experienced programmer around in this open source project, and you would get some of that, that journeyman real-world educational aspect you talked about.
0: No, that's a great point for our listeners. So, um, you know, in terms of like way the way that we build software today, I mean, are there any other things that you think get in the way of delivering a quality pro- uh, product?
2: Well, there's this interesting effect where software is the software industry as a whole has happened so fast. It's gone from almost nothing, mm. hobbyists in their in their uh, basement to kind of running the world. That it's all happened in one generation. So I make this analogy: it's like if if Orville Wright were in charge of building planes at Boeing, right? He'd, he'd probably have some old school ideas about <laughs> materials. Good analogy, yeah, and, and and whatnot. And and that's when I was your age,
0: exactly.
2: <laughs> and you have, I mean, someone like me who taught themselves to program uh, in Fortran and Basic, which are both terrible languages for for large scale software development, or at least in in the forms they were used back then. Visual Basic is is a decent language now, but but the uh, old school basic was terrible even the, the original authors of basic eventually recanted uh the the initial design and tried to push a more structured basic but yeah. but it was too late uh you know people like that are running microsoft i mean i'm, I'm not particularly calling out satya nadella but people who learned that style and, and never knew about unit testing and, and all that mm. code review stuff and i think it's a lot of people in the upper levels of a lot of software companies who still have this this old school instinct and they still haven't quite understood how long it takes when they're looking at a schedule, how long it really takes to engineer quality software. And so they'll just look a little funny at people who who uh, propose a schedule with the same amount of time for unit testing as writing code, for example, which is I think is a pretty good guideline. And especially a lot of people might come out of college and sort of Maybe full of some new ideas, but then if they've got some director of development who's like, "Well, I don't know about all that stuff. You're just some uninformed college kids." It can be a little off-putting, and of course, in a way, they're right because the college kids don't know a lot about software development. But, but some some of the newer ideas are are good ideas, and so mm-hmm. I think there's that. It, just the speed at which it happened um, has has sort of prevented old ideas from aging out the way they have in in disciplines like you know civil engineering or. Uh, you know, aerospace engineering, even medicine, things like that, where 200 years ago, it was pretty, pretty kind of not formalized, but, but now over time, things have gotten much more precise.
0: So how do you not fall into that trap? I mean, do you, do you try to stay grounded in, I mean, do you, do you try to keep your, you know, should should Satya be like, you know, writing code every once in a while to sort of understand what's going on there? Like how, how, you know, how does he stay up to date on that or, or is he too high up to, to well, he's,
2: He's probably too high yeah. up. I, I, I mean, yeah, obviously, he, he shouldn't be writing code. He has more important <laughs> things to do. But um, and, you, know, I, I, you know, he was a you know, started as an engineer. I'm sure he could write code, but yeah. uh, that, that's not his job right now. Yeah, I think it's just people should should stay up to date. I think that uh, I, I Microsoft did not go to industry conferences nearly as much as I'd like to have done, and, and that also means higher up people. Uh, Going to conferences, talking to Microsoft Research, so so Microsoft Research actually does a a pretty good job of doing empirical studies, trying to actually study programmers and and gain wisdom about what processes work and what processes don't, and and so there's a lot of wisdom there, just right inside the, the same company that could be that could be mined. And I, I know I know research is is pushed to to productize their ideas, but that's usually interpreted as. Well, okay, we have this new search algorithm. Let's put it in Bing, and we have this, uh, you know, machine learning algorithm. Let's let's put it over in a product somewhere. But I think there's a lot of empirical software engineering knowledge that could be moved over uh, to the product groups at Microsoft, or at any company. But Microsoft happens to have both a an active uh, research group with some focus on empirical studies of software engineering, and also, of course, large scale software development. So it seems like it's the perfect environment to they they could learn internally. Uh, but I I don't. Get a sense that certainly when I was uh, working there, there, there wasn't much of that learning from 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 studying other software engineers.
0: Go ahead, Carl.
1: So, kind of looking at the tagline of your book, you know, you kind of make imply that smart people make bad decisions over again. Um, it, one is that what you're going for, and you know, why why does that happen? Right. I, I
2: tried to avoid uh, being too negative about engineers. I didn't say why why dumb engineers write bad code, because, well, I'm an engineer. And, and, and I think they, they they are smart, and, 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 and they mean well, they're, they're not malicious, and so on. So uh, I tried to sort of put in that the, they're good people, but they're not quite doing things right. Uh, yeah, I think they just haven't been taught proper engineering starting uh, when they were in school. I think a lot of people have figured out, especially at a company like Microsoft. There are a lot of people who do understand now, okay, there, there are these things you have to do. I'm not trying to throw all of Microsoft under the bus here, but there's a lot of people who, who don't. And and so I think that it's you have to try to get people to to read it. I don't want to turn people off. So I was trying to go for a subtitle that would draw people in. Um, but appreciate that, yes, you're a smart person, you're a good person, all that you mean well, but still there's a lot you could learn about about doing software engineering. And a lot of the knowledge is out there. You just have to be open to receiving it. What One aspect of succeeding, starting from being self-taught in high school to doing well in college with essentially the self-taught skills to getting a job at Microsoft and being successful initially at Microsoft, again, essentially with the skills you taught yourself, is that you don't really have an appreciation of learning from others. You've You've made it this far on your own cleverness. And so... I'm trying to explain that yes, that's true, but you still have a lot to learn, uh, even though you're, as I said, very smart and, and and mean well.
0: Okay, is there anything else you wanted to make sure that you uh, mentioned? I think we covered the, the key stuff. I guess you want to keep some mystery for the book, so <laughs>
2: yeah. I, mean, I think the, the, the book. I, I I think there's a there's a lot of value in the book. One one thing yeah. I point out in the book is that is that a lot of this knowledge was around it, it was learned by IBM in the 60s and 70s and there's a lot of good historical uh reading about how to how to schedule software and how to how to test it and all these things that uh was out there and, and and was figured out in the 60s and 70s and then essentially once the PC revolution happened and everyone could teach themselves to program without having to go to college or work at a company people forgot almost all of this and and they really Microsoft had to relearn stuff that IBM learned at great expense in the 60s and 70s. Microsoft had to relearn it in the 80s and 90s. And so most of my quotes are from books written in the 70s because it's completely true today. And so my hope is that people get some sense of there's a history here. and, and, and please well, That's don't a good repeat idea, idea stating it that way.
0: Instead of just saying like, you know, hey, we've we've been through all of this. Um, just, you know, if you quote those quotes again, it's like, wait a second, those are the problems that we're dealing with today. Cause I was talking with Carl before the show. And like, one thing that I find frustrating is like people, people like really generalize history and, and it's like, you know, the cloud came about and they're just like, Oh, we're just back to mainframe computing. And it's like, well, okay. In, in one regard, sure. But like, you know, there's, it's, it's way more nuanced than that. So I think it, instead of like, you trying to like make this bold statement? You're you're just um, you're you're providing quotes of other people, and and people can come to their own conclusions. I really like that.
2: Yeah, I think if you read people like Harlan Mills or or Fred Brooks, uh, Jerry Weinberg, the people who are writing back in the day, I mean, you could just you could paste that into a book today, and it would still all be true. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, and I but that's another thing I'm sort of hoping is just to get a, people to pay attention to their history because this quote about people who ignore history are, are doomed to repeat it has, mm-hmm. has a hundred percent come true in the world of software. Yep.
0: So where can people find the book? Well, it's on,
2: uh, it's on Amazon, okay. uh, you know, whatever, barnesandnoble.com. Uh, some, I know in Seattle, some uh, some bookstores have it. Um, so the, the, the normal places uh, you could get books.
0: Okay. Very cool. And then uh, where can people find you? Well, you can go to my
2: uh, severely under-followed uh, Twitter account <laughs> uh, at Adam David Barr just okay. my full name. I try to post on there, uh, so uh, yeah, and you can you can contact me there. Okay. Um,
0: very cool. And then Carl, where can people find you? you can find me on twitter at carl schweitzer and you can find me on twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. so adam thank you so much for coming on here and giving us a little bit of a history lesson and and uh and showing us the the things that we should be looking out for and how to become better software engineers thank you
2: well thank you so much for having me on the show